This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SAS Scaled. Uh, I'm pleased to have Sino Mortezavi here, CEO at Kronos. Sino, welcome to the show, and please tell us a little bit about yourself and what Kronos does. Sure. So uh, I am the CEO of Kronos, and I spent most of my career at the intersection of IT and financial services. Uh, but I always wanted to serve a, a bigger mission, and so when this opportunity at Kronos came up, I uh, joined the company and, and we had acquired it from the founders back in 2015. And Cronus really is a market leading player in the mentoring software industry. So we have a market, we have a mentoring software platform and our mission is to try to create equal access for everybody that can help spur innovation through the power of technology and human connections. So mentoring has really impacted me and my personal life greatly. And uh, I'm really lucky to be part of a team and, and be working on a product that's trying to scale that for hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, based on your experience, uh, you have been, you know, studying uh, on the business side as well as, you know, finance side. And then you have software experience. You have experience with Accenture in the past and some other companies. Um when you saw the opportunity and you thought, okay, this is what I wanted to get involved in, what aspects of the business from your perspective was really shining aspects of it? And said, this is why I need to, I really love it and I need to you know, just get into this business. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, personally, on the career side, I've always tried to find a mission-driven company and something that's really making a difference in the world. So the offering that that Cronus provided around mentoring immediately caught my attention because I really wanted to be part of uh, the opportunity to make to make the world a better place. And so that was more on the personal side. But on the business side, there was a couple of different factors. One, the founders had done a great job of building a world-class product. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the time, uh, it was already, SaaS was just coming on board and some people were moving from on-premise on to SaaS, but this, this uh, product was already in the SaaS uh, cloud environment, already hosted on AWS, and it was really set up for scale. So we were really impressed by the product, and that was probably the first thing I noticed. Then the other thing was more around the market. So we could see that there was this new generation coming into the workforce with millennials, and they were looking for a different way to learn. This is a generation that is mm -hmm. getting used to Netflix and 
Ubers and Amazon. And so you don't want to wait for annual performance reviews. You want instant feedback and you want to have career growth much faster than you wanted before. And on top of that, there was also diversity, equity, and inclusion that also spoke uh, to me personally, but also was a trend that we saw coming forward. This was probably almost 10, 10 years ago. And that was really uh, two of the main reasons. The third one was also that they had just a lot of inbound leads coming in. So we were really impressed that with very little marketing and sales, they were getting calls from some of the biggest companies in the Fortune 500. And they were able to really get those customers to come onto the platform and see a lot of success with very little uh, sales effort to, to go out and evangelize the value of, of the platform and, and mentoring software in general. So those were the three key pillars that we thought justified um, myself and, and our investment team and group to step in and uh, acquire the business from the founders. Uh, fantastic. So you um, also mentioned the kind of marketing side of it that was essentially lead acquisition was good. So it was the cost of sales and marketing can go lower based upon that. Also, when we spoke before, you mentioned about the fact that you have been bootstrapping the business after, you know, the ac acquiring the company. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, from your perspective, um, what is the difference between being a VC-backed versus P-backed or bootstrapping the business, you know, those kind of stages? How do you see, you know, for other SaaS companies listening to this? Uh, you know, episode, they may just, you may share with them. This is my experience with this kind of different type of financing and different type of growth and the way you can really bring money, the way you can really, you know, build the company upon those investments. How do you see they differ from each other? Sure. And I've talked to a lot of founders and, and business owners who ask this very same question. Because it's a big decision and it can not only change the business, but it can change your personal life too. Mm -hmm. And so for us, the group that I put together to acquire the business back in 2015, they were uh, very much uh, a bootstrap mentality group. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me. I, I spent a lot of my career in microfinance where it's critical to be able to help people in a sustainable way. So we weren't relying on donations or other things to keep our mission going. We were relying on deposits and, and, and then lending that out and building that ecosystem to support some of the poorest peoples in the world. And what that did is it, it really helped create this very regimented thought process around every dollar you're spending. And with bootstrapped companies and what we went through for the first six years of our journey, it was exactly that. There were many times where maybe I couldn't take a salary to pay myself so we could hire a salesperson. Or maybe it was a situation where we had to, we exceeded our targets. Now we had extra money. Okay, let's put it into marketing to keep fueling that growth. Mm -hmm. And so during that tenure, we knew growth was king. So what we did essentially was we really optimized the business for growth while making sure EBITDA was was uh, or cash flow was neutral at the very uh, least mm -hmm. and it was not easy to do but we were able to do that it required a lot of strict regimented mindset and process and we also ended up taking some debt along the way which we can also talk about separately 
but there are other financing vehicles, even in a bootstrap situation, that can help you grow. So at the low end of the most conservative path, I would say, is that bootstrapped option, provided you're running the business that I, the way I described. I think the middle option is the private equity model. And in that model, you usually have access to a lot more capital and resources. Uh, however, the expectations, of course, are also higher. And so trying to find that balance can be challenging, uh, but is another path that can help give you the support you need and help you get to a higher outcome in a faster time frame. Uh, but it is a little riskier than the bootstrapped approach. And from a personal perspective, your lifestyle also can be very different because now you have a board potentially, or you have more professional investors that are coming in to uh, support you. And then of course, at the uh, other end of the spectrum is the VC model, where that's more of the high risk, high reward scenario. Uh, and that model typically, and I don't wanna speak for the whole VC world, and, and I've never worked directly for VCs, but talked to lots of people that have, uh, it's much more uh, focused around growth at all cost. Things are changing a little bit these days, but the growth aspect is much more an important focus on it. Um, and broadly speaking, you can look at those growth buckets in different in different ways. So bootstrapped, you know, zero to thirty percent, something like that, is usually what people try to look for. There's always exceptions. There's always people that can go higher or lower. But roughly, those are the kind of expectations you have. And your business is typically smaller. But if you're a bigger business and you decide to take on either private equity or VC growth then of course the growth expectations can be much higher because of the way that those businesses, those investors expect returns. Uh, and so that's where it's really just as much of a business decision, which will significantly impact how you run the business. It's a factor of the market, how the market is deploying. If you have a lot of competitors and you want to be first in the market, it may push you into one of the more PE uh, or VC backed models. Uh, and of course, just, uh, Personally, how, how do you want to live your day-to-day -day life? It's, it's very different under each of those scenarios. Yeah, very good points. So uh, in your case, of course, you mentioned that product was polished and ready and the lead gen engine was healthy. So I think these two can help a lot, right? So if you didn't have either of these, or if you thought that you have to still work for years to build the product and the product is not at the stage that you can really generate lead or sell it or provide the service out of it, then um, that's one factor, of course, that will require time and money. And the other one was the lead gen that in your case, it was good because you could at the lower cost of sales and at the lower cost of um, you know customer acquisition, maybe you could work. So um, what would be the case if you start a company let's say two years from now, and then you wanted to start this company. And at that point, it would be your focus to build a business that the lead gen on the marketing side can be good. Your focus will be on the product side to really make sure it's solid enough. Or there is a third focus that from your perspective, you will focus on that first before even you start, you decide that I want to start this. That's a great question, Arman. I think uh, the first thing is product market fit. That is, in my opinion, the, the number one factor because building a long-term business, you're not going to get very far if you don't have product market fit, no matter how many dollars you pour into sort of sales and marketing. 
And again, it's, it, it does come down to a personal decision. But in my case, I would try to bootstrap the company for as long as we could before mm-hmm. getting to a point where I could see. And for those that watch Shark Tank, you probably hear this a lot, kind of putting uh, gasoline on the fire versus trying to figure out how to make the fire. And, and so when you're thinking about go to market, you want to be in a position where you have some data and some wins that you can repeat and scale before you take outside capital. Because once you take that outside capital, the clock starts ticking and you don't have to have everything figured out. But if you're not for, uh, far enough along in your go-to-market journey, you may end up spending a lot of cycles and, and resources trying to figure it out. And so for me personally, if, if I were to start a new business, it would be along the lines of making sure there's a product market fit, then bootstrapping to see how to go to market. What are the things that are working? What are they not working? What's our ideal customer? All of those factors. And once we figured those things out, then it's a time to uh, get some outside capital to put that gasoline on the fire. So there are two different phases that are very obvious. One phase is I'm just figuring it out, the product market fit, all of the things that you just mentioned. And the second phase that is known is I'm ready to scale. And I think there are some science to both of them. There are tons of, you know, books and, you know, it's well hashed out that people know that this is really where I'm starting. Even if I wanted to bring investors like angel money or seed money investors, what kind of investors I need to bring that they understand we are just figuring it out. They need to be patient with us. It's not like every quarter I can give you the exact you know, forecast for the quarter uh, that's coming. And the last phase is just a scale and I'm ready to scale. That part is known as well. At that case, you infuse money to scale the business and you already have figured it out. You just need more cash so you can grow faster and scale bigger. And But there is a middle phase. That middle phase is where you transition from phase one to phase two. And in some cases, it's not super obvious that the transition doesn't happen overnight. And this transition may take years. It's not like, you know, I'm just in first phase. I figure it out, click, you know, just switch it overnight. Tomorrow morning, we are scalable. We can really go there and just be already the forecast works. So the second, the middle stage to me is very the tricky point, right? So that's where most of the VCs coming interested to invest because you are post revenue, because you have signed up some customers, you have passed the first pay. So the risk is much lower. You have a proof of business essentially at that point. However, the problem is you're not still yet at that point that you can save it 10% up and down. This is my next quarter. So they are most impactful and they know how to do it well when they are in the last phase. And then in the middle phase, still they need to count on you and the team to figure it out, not just going with the numbers that have been forecasted. It may be true or not at one point, because it's still, it's just the business getting there, getting to the third phase. Um, so, so the question is, what kind of investors would be best in the second phase? I know exactly what kind of investors are best in the third phase, the last phase. I know what kind of investors, or it might be yourself in, you know, investing and funding and bootstrapping one way or the other, somebody is not going to get salary or 
putting money to get salary, either way is investment. And I understand that the first way is how, you know, you should go and pick your kind of investors, if it's yourself or somebody else. On the last phase, I know, what do you think about the middle phase? What do you think that, you know, what is, because uh, what kind of investment, what kind of, you know, way we can handle the second phase uh, to get to the last phase that is so obvious? Mm -hmm. I'll give a little bit of a cheeky answer, but <laughs> I recognize it's not exactly what you're asking for. And the answer is your customers. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, if you have, if you're solving a big enough problem, you can actually get your customers to help fund your development. And you have to be thoughtful about IP and everything else. But if you're truly solving a problem that is big enough for you to invest the rest of your life into, then there are ways that you can get your customers to do that. And the benefit of that is that they have, I mean, uh, whether it's crowdfunding or whether it's large enterprises, I mean, they have a stake in seeing you succeed. They're exactly the customers you want to get. And uh, their capital is pretty cheap because they're not looking for equity typically. And they just want the product, which you can then take and sell to, to lots of other folks. And so uh, if if I could, that would be my number one option. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, if I had to go with a more traditional response, uh, would be certainly some of the smaller sort of investors out there, whether it's friends and family. It depends how much you're looking for. But uh, definitely doing your due diligence and getting to know that the investors that are the most flexible and have the longest time horizon and understand that you're in the middle phase and haven't figured things out yet. And uh, there are some investors that enjoy that journey and have done it maybe multiple times. So mm -hmm. it's really important to dig in to understand which of those folks are the ones that can help you with that juncture in your journey. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I could, I would try to get customers to fund that middle journey. But of course, if that's not possible, I, number one, I would question whether it's the right market and strategy and everything else. But if there's other factors that are preventing you from doing that, um, then there are specific investment groups which are probably in the smaller side versus the large sort of sequoias or other big big VCs that are out there. Yeah, no, great point. You're right. I mean, the best investor is always customer, but at the same time, it's the question of you know how fast you can acquire customer and how much you can spend to bring customers. One of the aspect of SaaS is that the nature of the business is subscription-based, is cumulative. So you can really add subscription business and then it adds to your business. So as you grow, life gets easier over time. But at the same time, at the beginning, in order to bring the first, you know, million or two and the first few millions of revenue and just build the base it's going to be subscription for the same reason if your cost of sales and marketing is more than one dollar to bring one dollar new arr that means you have to wait for a year to bring your money back and that creates the gap right so how fast you want it to grow so so at some degree it depends on what is the amount of money you need to spend in order to bring one new dollar of arr and if that answer is two dollars then that takes two years to recover from the dollar you already spent to bring it back but if you are established and you have a lot of existing arr that's not a problem because at that point 
that part is funding your new ARR. But at the beginning, the new ARR is the majority of your revenue and it's a big portion, if not the majority. And that essentially is changing the equation for most SaaS companies that if I wanted to increase the new ARR in order to grow faster and get to the fun part sooner, uh, meaning the part that, you know, my current recurring revenue is bigger than my new ARR that I'm getting every year, that will require that kind of acceleration. And as you said, this is really more about, you know, how fast you want to get there, right? So, and then you mm -hmm. tweak, this is the equation. But at the end of the day, it's really a kind of mathematical problem to solve. When you put all of these parameters, look at it, there are options. Do you want to go a little bit slower, a little bit faster? What is the cost of money? What is the cost of bringing one new dollar of new ARR? Then it can tell you that should I take approach B, C, D, or whatever. And of course, on top <laughs> of that, the personal choice, as you said, what is what you like to do and the style of the work that you wanted to do. So, so yeah, so great points on those. Um, so you have the what? Go ahead. One other thing I'll just quickly add, Armin. Uh, the other point to take into account is just collecting cash up front. I mean, I know you talked about uh, mm -hmm. how you can potentially fund and you're early with a lot of new business. But one thing that we did quite successfully is we were able to collect cash up front for the full year, sometimes even two or three years. Mm -hmm. And so certainly you do have to still deliver the service over that period of time. But getting the cash early and even giving a little discount for doing that to customers for paying out cash up front, the discount you give them will benefit you because even though you get lower cash, you're getting it earlier, which you can reinvest in the business. So there are those little tricks you could do to, to also help fund your growth early on that may help depending again on the industry and the dynamics of the business. Yeah, the other point uh, that you just mentioned was kind of longer than one-year agreements, right? So if you have a multi-year agreement, even if the customer doesn't finance you, you still have options to finance that agreement because that's a contract you have is a multi-year contract. So in that case, you can't really finance it if you need rather than really go and just, you know, bring in bed. That's a kind of multi-year contract. So, so companies that can bring multi-year contract rather than one-year contract or short-term contract or month-to-month, -month, that's an advantage to them. They have the potential to really bring the money sooner and helps the cash flow. Very good point. Um, now, based on your journey, and then you have, you know, grown the business during the last six years and you have it here, um, what is the best time, if any time, what is the best time from your perspective to bring any investor to the company? What is the best time, the way you look at it, to say this is the right time for the business, not for the team? I get it. The team is more personal to them and may not be a general rule about it. But what is the best time from business aspect that might be a good time for exit. So the best time for investment and the best time to just exit and say that's the good time. How do you sure. see that? For us, the best time for the investment was a point in the business where we had reached an inflection point. 
And what happens is you go through different chapters of your journey. So 1 million is very different than 5, 10, 20, 50, 100. And the skills, the team, the, the investment you need is, is very different in those different chapters. Mm-hmm. And so typically when you're at one of those inflection points, one of the key questions you have to ask yourself is, what do I need to get to the next level? And in our case, what happened was we reached a point where it was just getting unsustainable to maintain our growth rate without making a significant investment in the leadership team. Mm-hmm. There was a lot, especially as a, as a small company that rides on the CEO's shoulders. And as the business grows, that's just not sustainable. At the same time, if you're in a business where you do have long sales cycles or it takes a while to find the right talent or there's other reasons why it may take time to see the benefits of making those investments in either product or people or other factors, that's when it's important to look at yourself and say, okay, it's time to bring another uh, investment in to help us get to the next level because I know the investment I need to put into the business today is not really going to pay off for one or two or three years even. And so for us, uh, we were always able to maintain and we always kept the product really high in our priorities of, of investments. And we were able to maintain our leadership position from a product perspective. But at some point, it got to a place where maintaining X percent of growth is very different when you're 1 million versus 10 million, because a 50% growth rate at 1 million is 500,000 of ARR. At 10 million, it's 5 million. And that's a whole different ball game. You need a much bigger sales team. You need process. You need folks that can manage and take things off your plate, even from a team perspective. Our team had gotten to a point where we didn't have a full-time HR person, but we know we needed that. And so we kind of bootstrapped the company for as long as we could, and we had a lot of success doing that. But I could start sensing that it was putting a lot of pressure on the team because we weren't making additional investments for future growth. And so luckily we saw that a year before we needed it and we decided, okay, now's the time. And we recapitalized the business. Um, That was about six years after I joined uh, from 2015 to 21. And so from that point, then that's when um, we really took the business to the next level. We hired a broader leadership team. We made some other investments around our go-to-market and product and other things like that. So uh, I think every CEO should really get a strong sense of what it takes to get to the next level and try to do six or 12 months before then start socializing and getting your ducks in a row to think about how to get the right investor in place. And sometimes it's a product investment. Sometimes it could even be an acquisition that you think you need to do. There's a lot of different reasons why you would do it, but there's usually those key inflection points. And for us, uh, we were able to make that transition successfully. In terms of exit, I think, for the broader scope, I, I, I actually spoke about this a couple of weeks ago with, with a group of students. And w- what I mentioned is that it kind of comes to three things. One is your personal. I, I really do believe that without your personal uh, position in, in life, I guess, or what you're looking for, it's hard to make the rest of the equation work out. And so that's number one. I think you have to be ready for for that exit. It's a big change. If you're planning to step down, that's a big change potentially of your identity, a change of your day-to-day life. A lot of things can happen in that situation. So one is just looking within and saying, am I ready to exit? And if I do exit, what does that mean? Am I staying on? Am I not? Am I trying to reduce my scope from CEO to VP of product or sales or something 
like that. So that's one. Number two is again back to the business. How are the dynamics of the market and the business? Are we getting to a point where maybe competition is much more sophisticated, or we are reaching the end of our maybe addressable market, or other factors? Or like I said before, you need an investment round to really get to the next level. So looking at it from the business perspective is probably another key criteria to think about. Uh, and the third one, of course, is probably uh, the most important from a fiduciary uh, duty perspective, which is your investors. If you haven't taken on investment, then it's maybe not as applicable. But if you have angel investors or if you have other forms of investors, which you probably will if you're at the point of being big enough to exit, then, of course, you have to do what's right for them as well. And so uh, those are the three kind of key criteria. And uh, that has served me well, at least in, in my journey here. And that was uh, something that I would coach others to do if they're thinking about exiting is looking at it from those three different lenses. Very good points. Um, thanks for sharing with us. Um, so you have a team now that is kind of global. So you have different people in different parts of the world. Um, so you have experience working with people not to be necessarily at your location. Of course, COVID time changed everyone to be remote. But right now, nonetheless, working with a team that not, may not be necessarily at your location and you need to work with them in different locations. What is, what is your experience with kind of managing the team globally and would you do it again? Or you may say next time, if I wanted to start up to a certain stage, I may keep everyone at one location and then I may go and just do it. Or no, that's fine. If you do it right at any stage, it can work. Really doesn't matter. Yeah, I think for us, it's it has certainly worked out. Uh, but it is, again, I, I, I'm not trying to continue to bring up the theme of the personal choice, but that is a big part of this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate enough that I did grow up abroad um, and I was able to really understand from a cultural perspective how to bring different parts of the world together. And, and I've, I've traveled to a lot of places and got that perspective. And so that helps a lot because if you are trying to manage a global team and they are virtual, the cultural aspect is really complex, but can also be really powerful if you get it right. And so uh, for us, what really worked is having a great leadership team. Our team is in India and they have done a phenomenal job with the team over there. Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate enough that the founders had set up a really strong ecosystem and we were able to continue to invest and grow that ecosystem. And so uh, when we were managing the business, it almost felt like two different businesses at times because it was so difficult to, to do the two. But having that trusted leadership that are effective in place is critical because you can't be there every day mm -hmm. and you need that day-to-day -day culture to really be ingrained in the people there. And then, of course, being on site is critical. I would travel there at least once a quarter. And that's not easy to do. It's a big time commitment. It's a cost, especially if you're a smaller business and trying to keep costs low. But you fly economy and and and, and find the cheap flights at 2 a.m. or whatever time there is. Uh, and it's actually really How rewarding often to, to is see. It you were traveling there? Almost, uh, almost once a quarter. So three to four times a year. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And that was important because I think that it's really critical to have that face-to-face -face time to really get a sense of what's happening on the ground and just being available because uh, being CEO or, or running as a founder of a business, 
you are the heartbeat, you are the life of the business. And people not only look up to you, but they expect a certain level of engagement. Uh, and you can get lost if you don't do that. And you don't really get a sense of what the issues are if you aren't able to be on, on site to really get a strong feel for it. Um, now, of course, in our case, the pandemic changed that. So um, we were uh, unable to really, I was unable to go to India for almost two years. Uh, but that was fortunate enough. We were able to have built that foundation and get the right team in place. So we were able to weather that two-year storm. And now I've started going back again and uh, starting to bring those two cultures together. Because that's one of the big challenges is having two different offices across countries. You're not just doing what the cultural differences from the countries and from the religions or languages or other factors. But you're also dealing the challenge of the company culture. And trying to bring those two together is rather challenging, but one that I think we've navigated well. And so I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. I know other folks who've tried and, and have not been successful. Uh, there's definitely a lot of risk involved. Mm-hmm. But in, in my personal case, I would certainly do it again. And uh, I would involve or encourage others that have the right background and, and experience and an understanding of how to merge these two cultures to really form one cohesive team. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of benefits that can come from that. Okay, fantastic. Um, yeah, my experience with uh, my previous company, of course, we started in 2000. We did everything in that office. So it was just everything is being done in McLean, Virginia, Tyson's area. But then with the second company when I started, that was um, about 15, 16 years afterwards, then I started with the idea that I wanted to build a faster kind of, you know, building the team faster in a shorter amount of time. So I could not just let's start with gradually building the team. And for that reason, at that time, it was not super easy to really compete with, you know, government and big businesses in this area coming. So as a startup, I thought it's much faster. I would go and just start. Um, you know, building that overseas. And it was a good experience, great experience. And those people are still with the company. And we had a really, um, you know, we work with each other. As you said, it's not going to be as easy as everyone is around you in the same office. You go to work and see everyone, you know, in the kitchen and uh, every day and you have a chat with them. You have to really now cater to different cultures and work with them. Uh, but you know, overall, I thought that there are many benefits and advantages to really having that kind of model and it worked well. Um, I would like to ask you if you could uh, share uh, one of the books or some of the books that you would like uh, to read again, something that you, you know, you, you liked it and it had a positive impact. Sure. The one that comes to mind is... Uh, uh, there's lots of business books out there, and I'm sure there's others that are a little bit more uh, memorable or that you'd want to read again. But but uh, one that's more personal is is Eric Shackleton's Endurance uh, story. Uh, so for those that don't know, uh, Shackleton had attempted to do a voyage to uh, Antarctica and um, had essentially got stuck with his with his uh, crew in the icebergs there. And for over a year, I believe he was. Uh, unable to get out of there. And people thought that both him and his whole crew had perished. But uh, he was able to get through the hard times and survive 
and find a way for him and his crew to get back to uh, to England. And that was just a remarkable story of just leadership, courage, tenacity, endurance, grit. I mean, you can the laundry list of things that that it represented. But the idea that they were able to survive that kind of experience is really a good a good sort of grounding for all of us that when times get tough, especially these days with everything going on, that uh, there are uh, ways that we can get through it and not only uh, get through this time, but even get out stronger and, and uh, have that journey as a reminder of the potential that we all have to endure the hard times and get through that to see a lot of success and, and the fruits of our hard labor. So that's one that I often keep in mind when I'm at my lows. And uh, it always helps to get a bigger perspective on life and, and the journey we're all on and the potential that we have as, as humans to really uh, endure and persevere in tough times. Fantastic. Great choice and great suggestion. Thank you very much, Sina. It was great speaking with you. Uh, we will follow you and we wish, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you for the time. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.